All right, it has. I've been <laughs> staying up late at night. All right. Well, um, so we'll get uh, we'll get started. Uh, the first thing we'll do as we get started class two tonight is kind of a little bit of a just conversation review of uh, Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You may have, it's a popular cultural, we were just talking about this, um, even in public high schools, at least back in the day, required you to read it, you know. Um, so anyway, so just as you observed it, looked at it, what are some high points that you kind of noticed? Some of the things I wanted you to kind of, um, his is especially um, picturesque, right? A lot of word pictures. Uh, what, what did you notice? Lots of highlighting. Lots of highlighting. <laughs> the first thing I noticed was he preached that entire sermon on just half of Deuteronomy 32. If, if you, the funny thing, if you go back to the Puritans and you read, you know, we've got like books in the bookstore, you know, and they're abbreviated titles. Usually a, a, a good Puritan title mm-hmm. of a book is three paragraphs long, like literally... It goes on and on, like the, I mean, they were very, very precise. <laughs> so yes, I'm not surprised he did that. You'll see one in a minute with Ryle, who did one verse as well. So I think the thing that stuck out to me the most was, um, uh, I wrote it, so I'm going to read it. Yeah. The title of the sermon, while true, to, uh, is ironic, because it's God's kindness in holding back hell that leads us to repentance. Yeah. I was overwhelmed by that. Uh, as I read, I never read, I never heard, I don't know how I never had. Yeah. What other observations did you make? I think it's very severe. Um, <laughs> it's like it is. A fire and it is. Sermon, but, you it know, is severe. I just kind of wonder, you know, what kind of people he's dealing with that you have to, you know, beat that in their head so hard, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, hell is right there and it's like, you're going to fall right into it, you wicked well, I, th- I think part of the context of that is important to know is because they were in, as much as sometimes we may use the term bubble around here a little bit, like you're in a Christian bubble, like they were in a severe one, meaning like it was it was uh, very tight-knit, and it was like you're all, exp- I mean, you're Puritans, you're all Christians, right? So he had to labor pretty hard to help almost like deconvert them, <laughs> like that you're, mm-hmm. you know, you're not really a Christian because you were just born here kind of thing, so I think the severity of it is a little bit indicating that audience um they would just thought hey yeah sure we're all we're all good so what about some of the stylistic elements that you noticed how does he communicate i struggled with the style because it was i I didn't realize how much i'm used to a good outline sure not that he didn't have an outline but it was a lot harder to sort through what the outline was it was like and even after the first, like when I read the first page, I thought, okay, these are going to be his four points that he's going to then break mm-hmm. down later. And mm-hmm. Instead, he went into another ten point, you know. And then, and then you get to the, towards the end in his application, it's like there's a paragraph that's the whole page. Yep. More than the whole page. Yep. Yeah, you know, I just get I I realize how much trouble I have just sorting through all that and trying to. Yeah, and this is before the age the of PowerPoint and stuff too. <laughs> so for the yeah. for the for the audience to follow along, I mean, you really had to. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard like to follow. A, that new movie they talk about, it's all filmed in one take. It's like, yes, one take 1917. Yep. I saw that was a good movie, by the way. Yep. We're just not going to stop. Yep. I need a break. Yeah, and a lot of times the Puritans, like they, like I said, they would they would do sub-point to sub-point to sub-point. And one of the things we'll talk about later as we get into kind of presenta- presentation or presentation, presentation, um, as we get into that, we'll talk about keeping it as simple as possible, like rarely... Really, should you have to go to sub points 
sometimes it's necessary, but trying to keep just a couple of main points. You're trying to communicate really one point, mm-hmm. and you're when you're when you're teaching whatever, you're trying to communicate one thing, not like. Here, let me give you 85 things, which is what the Puritans typically would do. <laughs> so, yeah, that's why I felt in here. I was like, there's a lot. Yeah, you want the listener to walk away with, with, with a main point. And you may have multiple points, but as long as they feed to that one main point, uh, then you've done your job, right? Which I did walk away with one point. So on, on that standpoint, I did walk away with one point. Yep. Just, yeah. There was 50 points. You're a center mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he did accomplish that. <laughs> Yeah, yep. Okay, so um, so yeah. As you uh, just wanted you to read, these are just different. It's a different style. I mean, this is also. I'm, I'm having you read some older stuff, right? I'm, I don't really. Give, I'm not really giving you any modern stuff. We're reading older stuff just because I want you to see how, even how some communication things have evolved over time. Um, it also helps us realize that uh, it's kind of like if you go to a mission, go to on a short-term mission trip, and you kind of come back, you're like, oh. I just thought Christianity was only like this. And you kind of get outside, you're like, oh, this is how they do it? This is different? Same thing with this. This is, uh, you realize there's lots of ways to communicate um, God's word. Uh, there's not a, uh, even the Bible doesn't give us a very precise m- you know, method um, of how to communicate. A lot of times we got to depend on our, audi- our audience and what it is that, how do they understand? How do we best convey truth to them? All right. But like I said, one of the things I really love about Edward's sermon is just his, the, the the way he he labors to paint pictures, very detailed um, in that way. Uh, Thomas Watson was also a Puritan. If you ever read anything about Thomas Watson, there's a really good one called The Body of Divinity. We have it in our bookstore. It's a, actually it's a systematic theology written from Puritans, which you would think be like, okay, that's I need like a doctoral degree to understand that. He, every every time he talks, everything's pictures, just paints pictures over and over again, so you see kind of what he's saying. So that's kind of the method of that. All right. Well, very good. Um, so we'll jump into uh, our second section. Before we uh, do that, let me, uh, let me pray for us. God, thank you for the opportunity to study um, how to communicate your word, how to present it. As we look at today, just kind of finishing up our kind of little preliminary uh, studies here on how we know we have your word. As we look at canonicity, we look at how we got the Bible, as we look at translations and all that different stuff, that God, it would help us um, be more, again, uh, understanding and also certain of what we do have is truly your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things um, I did put online for you, uh, the notes, I filled those out. I know I had to zip through the first two classes. I'm just, I don't want to labor this point too long, but I do want to present these things to you. Um, one of the things I had... Um, mentioned to you I want to trace back on was the Dead Sea Scrolls thing for a moment, and then we'll move into new content. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls found, found, they discovered, crazy story, by a Bedouin sheep herder, basically, who was uh, thought he lost some of his sheep trying to find them, thought they were in a cave, um, started throwing rocks, tried to scare them out of a cave, and heard something shatter, goes in, and he finds scrolls of the Bible from like 400 B.C., like before Christ. Like, this is not... You have to understand the, 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 the earliest complete copies of like, uh, I'll give you an example, like the book of Isaiah was around 900 AD. So you find these, they're 400 BC. You're talking over a thousand years, do the math there. And it was really when it happened, if you, if you go back and read the archives, news stories, it was like liberals jumped all over it. because like, oh, we're finally going to find out how the Bible has been radically shifted and changed over the years. And they went back and they, they went through... Um, Isaiah, and they found out of the the entire book, 
they found like one, there's like one word difference from the 400 BC copy to the 900 AD copy. One word. And Isaiah 53, for example, which is one they really harped on, you know, was like completely intact. And you can see though, I mean, there's actually sometimes the museum travels around, but they've had it, I've seen it before. Uh, I think it was in LA I saw it, but they have them sometimes. It travels around. You can see the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's fascinating. So I just wanted to share that with you because I think it's just one of those things we talk about translations and copying and like, oh, do I really, I mean, if the words of God's only inspired in the original language, like original manuscript, like how, how can we know that we have it? You can be very certain of that, right? All the way through, it's been copied and, and uh, handed over in that way. So, so anyway, um, so let's move to class number two. Uh, you should have your notes. Does everybody have a copy back there? Everyone got a copy, 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 copy. Yes, we're good. Um, do you have one? All right. So like I said, there's a lot more in last week's class. You can look at the, the document I gave you online there that will kind of fill in a lot of the stuff that was there. So so let's start off um, talking about what's the Bible. What is the Bible? The Bible is God's Word given to humanity to communicate and display the glory of God. So again, what we find there in that definition is that the Bible is... is um, it's about God. It's not about us. I said this morning, right? The, the point of the Bible is not about me and what I need to do for God. It's about Jesus and what he came to do for me. Uh, it's a radical different, radically different way of looking at that. Every other religious textbook someone picks up, they look at it as a list of rules. Um, maybe s- stories shared, but those stories are only there to point to the rules. They're, il- they're illustrations of how to keep the rules. Um, as opposed to, we're looking at it the other way around. It's a whole story uh, communicating to us the, the person and work of God. Now, the word um, Bible, if you know this or not, uh, biblios is the word. So it's, a lot, it's a Greek word. Um, and it, uh, a lot of times in our modern language, you'll see, um, yeah, mine has it, holy Bible. If you ever wonder why it says that, because the word Bible just means book. That's all it means. And so holy is a way it doesn't, it's not just a normal book. This is a set-apart book, right? That's why the word holy Bible usually is in front, in front of, otherwise it's just a, a book in general. And so, and as we find out in the Bible, it's, it's not a, um, um, it's, not, it's not really, it's, it's a single book, but at the same time, it's also a lot of books, right? It's a, a collection of 66 individual books. If you put it on a bookshelf, that'd be kind of what it looks like right there. Those are all the books within the book, okay, of, uh, of the Bible. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the new, so a total of 66 is uh, is what we have. And so, um, um, number two, what were the original books and letters written on? So this is kind of, uh, wasn't we didn't have paper back then. Uh, some of the things that was uh, communicated to us, uh, the Old Testament was originally written on, they kind of whatever they could find, to be honest with you. Um, stone, clay, wood, leather, sometimes even gold, silver, copper, lead, or clay pottery, right? It was just anything they could find, um, to write on and communicate, they would. Uh, New Testament was narrowed down to more of a modern um, way of doing it, which is papyrus or parchment. Okay, so that's kind of what um, what the Old and New Testament um, was written on. You'll find uh, some of the uh, passages of Scripture from uh, from the Book of Job. So you find um, Job nineteen uh, twenty three to twenty four says, "Oh, that my words were written." Oh, that they were scribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved on a rock. Right? So, so you find Job talking. Job is, by the way, if you or not, it's actually the oldest book in the Bible. Um, I know it looks like Joseph is the oldest. And what it records is the oldest, but Job is actually the, the oldest book that was written. Um, and so he talks about there using um, lead and 
engraved. Um, there it is, Job 19, 23 to 24. And these are some of the, like, I, don't trust me, you can't, I wouldn't be able to read it even if it was clear. But um, it is, uh, that is kind of giving you an example of that. That's a portion of scripture written on a stone tablet, okay? Kind of when you think of, like, the Ten Commandments, this is kind of gives you an idea of kind of what it would have looked like. You can kind of see the shape. That's, you see, if you ever watched you know, uh, Trolton Heston and, you know, they, they kind of look like that, right? Um, so, um, so it'd be hard, hard to break metal like that, but anyway, uh, this is leather. So this was, uh, a Bible, a book of the Bibles we found that was, um, written with, uh, on leather paper. Um, um, and so you got that, you've got the, uh, another one here. This is called, you know, don't worry about writing this down, but uh, Code of Hammurabi. Um, this was a, uh, uh, written about 1700 BC. It's not the Bible. This is a Babylonian kind of like commandments. <laughs> and uh, that's the only reason I'll show you that, interesting enough, um, is because uh, on this one, um, you find that uh, a lot of scholars or skeptics, I guess, had said that people like Moses, for example, like they wouldn't have had the skill to write things like this and da da da. Well, then they go and discover in Babylon like the same kind of commandments written, you know, that were really. Um, newer versions than our older versions and even what uh, uh, would have been so much so they say like Abraham for example it's very possible he would have known five different uh, written languages not just spoken languages but written um, has become uh, pretty common these days so um, papyrus is the other piece um, this was kind of made out of uh, in the New Testament a lot of times this is what was written written on uh, made out of reeds to be beaten glued together all kinds of methods that would go along with that you can kind of see here, this is kind of an idea of what a um, papyrus uh, would have looked like. These rolls were put into books. Um, and, uh, and then you find the uh, parchments, is the other one, which you may be familiar with. This is what was rolled up. These are animal skins that were kind of rolled into what became scrolls. Okay? So when you go to places like um, 2 Timothy 4.13, Paul asks for them to send him the parchments. Okay, That was, that was the, the material which they wrote on. Uh, in Luke 4, uh, 17, Jesus goes into the, um, um, it, it goes to read from the <clears throat> passage of Isaiah, and it says he opened up the scrolls. This is kind of the idea of what he would have, what he would have specifically found or had to read from. All right, uh, I already gave you those. Uh, number three, what were the languages? What were the languages spoken during Bible time? So we're not, not talking about necessarily the written ones just yet. We're talking about the spoken ones. Uh, what were the ones that were spoken? And they're kind of in two categories. In the Old Testament, they had um, Semitic languages, including Aramaic and Hebrew. That's what kind of everyone mostly spoke. In the New Testament, they had what we call uh, today Indo-European languages, kind of like Greek or Latin, um, those kind of words or um, languages. So the Semitic languages of the Old Testament included uh, Akkadian, was used in Assyrian and Babylon, Arabic, <laughs> which are spoken by the Egyptians, Aramaic, spoken by the Syrians and the Amorites. Um, you have the Phoenicians, Moabites, Hebrew languages, lots of languages being spoken of all the different countries and languages they went to. New Testament, they also had some of those Semitic languages, again. Um, they had the Hebrew and, and Aramaic as well. Uh, but in the Indo-European languages were the Latin and the Greek, were the kind of two primary ones. Um, in Greek, they, um, the common language, and maybe, maybe someone knows this, what was a language? It was a kind of Greek that was spoken. It was called the common Greek. It starts with a K. Koine. It's not coin, but close to Kanye? it. Koine. There you go. You got it pretty close. Like Kanye, but Koine. That's kind of... <laughs> that's kind of, why I got confused. 
so this will be Kanye East, actually. <laughs> anyway, um, that was the, I'll be back later. Um, the, uh, <laughs> uh, so anyway, so this was uh, that was was spoken. It was a very common language of the day. Um, and so you find what you find is, and this is some of the stuff will start to make sense. So you had. Um, those who, um, the, the common people spoke Greek. You had the, uh, the kind of Greek natives did. The, he, the Jewish people spoke Hebrew primarily. And then the people were within the city of Rome, okay, um, the kind of really high up authority spoke Latin. Or those are kind of the main languages going on. Interestingly enough, when you find, um, when you find uh, John 19.20, when they read the inscription about the place where Jesus was crucified, uh, it was near the city, it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. That's why that was, those were the three main languages that were spoken. Again, the Hebrew was for the Jewish people. Latin was for the, peop- the people from Rome, kind of the people like Pon- uh, Pilate, for example, would have spoken Latin. Uh, and then Greek for the common uh, person, the, non- the Gentile, uh, non-Jewish person at the time. And so you kind of get the idea of something like that is what it would have looked like up on there with those three different languages. So those are things that kind of were spoken at the time. So the Bible, it's written, Old Testament, Primarily Hebrew, New Testament, all Greek. I say primarily because in the Old Testament there is some Aramaic. Uh, you go to places like in Daniel, I think Esther as well, will have portions of it that's actually written in Aramaic and not, not Hebrew um, in that way. All right? So where did the chapters and verses come from? All right, so we get a Bible, we open it up. We used to go into the index at the beginning. It's got books, it's got page numbers, and then you got verses and chapters. And where did all that come from? Um, let's talk about that for a moment because that's important for you to know. If you're going to teach the Bible, realize that those things, where those things came from. Chapters and verses were added later, okay? So remember, they, they weren't originally part of the Bible. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he didn't write chapter 1 and then chapter 2 and then put verses in those, okay? Those were all added much, actually much later. Um, but they were there for people to, like, kind of like our home addresses, right? Provide us with addresses, help us find particular sections, because obviously it's a very large book, and so it'd be hard to find uh, where things are, okay? So here's how it works. So in the year uh, 1205, uh, there's a guy named Stephen Langston. He was a theology professor uh, who became the Archbishop of Canterbury, began using Bible chapters. He was the first one to begin doing that for his students, because he realized it was kind of hard for them to study um, in that way. In 1240, a guy named Cardinal Hugo of St. Cher, like as in the 80s music singer, I guess, um, Cardinal Hugo. He published a Latin Bible, and in, in that one, it became the first one printed that had uh, 1,189 chapter divisions that exist today. So he was the first one, Hugo, the first guy to do that. Uh, Robert Stephanus, a Protestant uh, book printer, was condemned as a heretic for printing Bibles. He kind of uh, started doing that. Uh, as he fled on horseback to Geneva, he, uh, he began to make verse divisions. Okay, so began to break those up uh, in those segments. So he did it on the run. It kind of helps you realize it wasn't something that was like thoroughly thought out. So if ever you open your Bible and you get start reading passages, you're like, why did the verse in there when really the thought was still going? You ever notice that in some of the passages? Um, you'll find some of that. And so he was the first one to kind of do that. It was called the Geneva New Testament of 1557. It was the first one that had the 31,000 plus verses that we have today. He's the one that kind of did all of that, but again, he did that as he was running for his life <laughs> and trying to trying to d- divide all that out. So you can kind of see a, a segment of it here is kind of what it looked like. 
um, in terms of breaking them up in verses and putting them in, in those sections. And so, again, no logical or consistent method to that. Um, you can go to places, uh, John 12, 36 is an example. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 31 is another example. If you read John 15 and 16, you'll see the chapter divisions in that and go like, why do you break it up right in the middle of a thought? doesn't quite make sense. So th- those aren't inspired. Right? Chapter breakdowns aren't. First breakdowns are not. Um, and just so you understand where those come from, it came from at that time. All right? All right, so what is the canon of Scripture? That's an odd kind of word sometimes. Talk about a canon. We think about um, you know something used in war. But uh, the canon of Scripture is the collection of books that the church has recognized as having divine authority. We're going to talk about this for a little bit, so we kind of break that down. The word uh, canon is from a, is a Greek word, which means measuring rod. That's why we use that word, the measuring rod of Scripture. In other words, everything that we measure it, everything that gets measured up against it, right? It's the standard, it's the line, everything else gets measured up against it. And so that's what, uh, what we're talking about when we talk about the canon or the measuring rod um, of Scripture. Okay? Now, this is always a good question. What spurred the church to canonize the Bible? When did that happen, and why did they do it? And this is a very interesting answer. It, it started, uh, well, heresy is what started the official canonization process. <laughs> That's what started it. Um, heresy. Heresy is a word that we talk about using as a, um, you've, you've gone off the deep end theologically, okay? You've abandoned the gospel. You've denied core tenets of the faith, like, say, denied the deity of Christ or, you know, denied salvation by, um, by grace alone, through faith alone kind of thing, right? Um, and so what started it, interesting enough, was, uh, was Harrison. And here's the guy, this good guy right here, Marcion was the dude. Um, he, um, he was in 144. So you're talking, if the last book of the Bible was probably written around 90, roughly, which would be the re- book of Revelation, um, this is, we're speaking about 50 years later. Okay, he, he basically, what he did is he decided to publish his own version. I got the, I know what the canon of the Bible is. I know which books are in the Bible, which ones aren't. Because there was lots of letters going around, which we'll talk about in a second. Um... And so he, he had his own list, and uh, he, um, he believed, because of his, I say heresy, the reason we say that, is because he believed that the God of the Old Testament, kind of like the modern idea that people would say, hey, the God of the Old Testament was some mean, you know, cantankerous, angry, grumpy, and then there's Jesus who, like, you know, cuddled, you know, had baby lambs and pranced through the fields of daisies or something, you know, that kind of, like, put these two contrasts. He's the one who kind of started that idea. Um, he believed that, uh, he had a word here. Um, Demiurge. It's kind of like sounds like something from um, Stranger Things. Um, that's what I think of when I hear that. Demiurge. Um, very similar, isn't it? I don't remember what the Stranger Demogorgon. Things. Demogorgon. See, very close. Um, nothing new under the sun here. Okay. So um, uh, Demiurge. Uh, he believed that basically that that was a word he used to refer to the God of the Old Testament. He was a lesser deity. He's kind of uh, demonic-like, uh, nasty disposition, very angry, easily short, kind of short-fused kind of deity. Um, but he believed Jesus, though, came to reveal the true God. So here's, here's why I say all that. What he did is he went to the New Testament and he said, okay, any book that quotes about the God of the Old Testament, it can't be, can't be from God. So he pulled those out, right? Or portions of them, he started to pull them out as well. So he cut out, verse, verse, the whole entire book of Matthew pretty much was cut out. You're like, that's not inspired because that quotes the Old Testament way too much. Um, he, uh, he took out, um, some of Paul's writings. Uh, he ended up with a small abridged version of what he said was 
we call this Marcion's Canon. Um, so he used, these are the ones over here. He said, yeah, th these look good. These are from God. These are not. <laughs> so he took out Romans, Matthew, John, like some really important books, right? Um, took all those out. And so that started the church to go like, okay, we got to figure out, we can't let this guy run off, you know, and kind of lead people astray. We need to, we need to sit down and kind of figure this thing out. Um, and so it was important, you know, that there wasn't any urgency among Christians to go like, we got we to gotta put these things in a binding, you know, book like this and make sure we have it because it just wasn't an issue. It was universally really accepted in many ways what books of the Bible were and what they, what they were not. So it leads us to how were the books selected? Um, how were they selected? Okay. From the very beginning of the church, basic books of the New Testament. Um, I'm just dealing with the New Testament here, not the old. We'll talk about the old in a minute. Those that, uh, those that we read and observe today were in use, and they functioned as a canon because of their apostolic authority. So what I mean by all of that, that kind of words, is that they, um, um, it, it, was, it was, again, functional uh, to the people. They understood. The apostles wrote it. It was accepted. This is all part of There wasn't really much debate. It was like people in the church fighting over, like, I don't think that's in the Bible. I think that is. Sometimes the modern kind of scholars that maybe are skeptics of Scripture will tell you, kind of paint that image that, they were all fighting with each other, and, you know, one, one happened to win over the other. Um, really, the first list that came out, he's a cool guy, isn't he? Um, Athanasius is this guy's name. He's got a very interesting forehead. Um, Athanasius. <laughs> um, this is, yeah, so when you, yeah, if I was hanging in your house, you'd sleep with one I opened with that one. Um, AD 367 was the first one to kind of put a whole... Was we have it today, Bible together. Okay, he was the first one to do that. Athanasius was his name. Uh, the first um, kind of uh, collection came to a, a, whoops, there, I love ancient art, isn't it fun? Um, I'm sure they didn't really look like this, but uh, the ancient uh, Council of Laodicea, okay, AD 363, um, was where they started to, to work with that. So, um, so again, th there's a process that took over time. Doesn't mean the church uh, was without a New Testament um, at all before that time. So um, that was the process that they went, they went through. Okay, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit here. What about the Old Testament? Old Testament, all right. Give you some nice Jewish words here. Uh, Jewish people call it the Tanakh. Tanakh, Tanakh. Did I say that right? Um, the Tanakh. Okay, so this is a, um, uh, an acronym formed from the first letters of the Torah. That would be the law books. Um, Navim, the prophets, and the uh, Ketavim, the writings, okay, Ketavim. Um, and so we find that's how they broke up their, their, their Bible, okay, their Old Testament. They broke it up into law, prophets, and the writings. Um, this may start to make sense. If you remember Jesus in, in Luke 24, verse 44, remember he's talking to the disciples, he meets them on the road, remember, and they don't know it's him, that whole thing, and it says he stops, he teaches them everything concerning himself. And this is, this is what it says. It says... Um, in Luke uh, 24, 44, uh, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And everything written about me in the, there it is, law, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms which we fulfilled. That's the breakdown of uh, how they viewed and understood uh, the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was universally accepted by Jews. There was really no debate of those books um, during that time. As a matter of fact, 250 years before Jesus, uh, Greek-speaking Greek Jews living in Alexandria translated um, the uh, the Hebrew Old Testament, we talked about this a little bit last week, uh, translated into Greek, which became known as the Septuagint. Easy way, sometimes you'll see the uh, letters L, X, X. 
That's what that stands for. Okay. Um, that is the, uh, that's the version. They re and this is important for you to know too. They rearranged the order when he did it. So there's a Hebrew Bible by Jewish people. Okay. Same books. When they translate into Greek, the Greeks changed the order of the books. Okay. So if you ever wonder why we have the order, because if you, um, have you ever read or have a chronological Bible? You know, what those, you know what those are? So those basically, if you read those, you're like, it, it, doesn't, go, it doesn't follow the same way because it kind of tries to follow the timeline of the events. Um, and so you find that it's not quite, so how do we get the order that we got? It came from these guys, the Greeks that were retranslating it. So a lot of the Hebrews had lesser books because they combined a bunch. For example, they had the, a book called the Twelve, and that was the Twelve Minor Prophets. They weren't 12 separate books. They were just one book. Uh, the Greeks, when they translated out, broke those up into 12. Same thing with some others. First uh, and Second Samuel um, and the Kings were all one book called the Books of the Kingdom. Um, Chronicles and uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were also lumped together uh, in that way. And so, uh, so the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, begins with Genesis. It ends with Second Chronicles. That's how they ended it. Uh, the, the Greek version, which became our version of the Bible today in English, uh, starts with Genesis, ends with Malachi. Right? So that's how we... We got that. It wasn't the originally, that's not originally how they were gathered together. Um, again, important for you to know the order of the books that they are lined up in or is not necessarily inspired by God, meaning like they're not as a, no secret to like this book has to go before that book. And there's also no significance to theologically for that either. Okay. All right. Let's go back to the New, about the New Testament canon. Um, so the early church immediately recognized most of the books of the New Testament as canonical, including the four Gospels in our Bible today. So the four Gospels um, were gladly received, universally received. There's really no debate over those. And we'll talk about some of the, you know, Da Vinci Code stuff here in a minute that said, oh, that was not, not the case. Um, they, uh, and I'll actually, quote, I'll actually give you some quotes from some of their stuff so you kind of realize how bogus that stuff was. Um, most of the writings of Paul, including 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, uh, the book of Acts, 1 John, 1 Peter, Revelation, these were all universally accepted. Um, you find uh, Hebrews is also brought in, even though they didn't know the author, uh, but because of its uh, theological um, nature. That left James, 2 Peter, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude as having some debate over, are these books part of the Bible or are they not? Um, there was also a couple of others that were debated as being part of the scripture that didn't become part. Epistle of Barnabas, Shepherd of Hermes, that would be a fun book, uh, and the first and second epistles of Clement. These were all written right around 100 um, as well. So, so while the Old Testament was pretty closed, no issue there, um, we find that once the canon was closed in the Old Testament, God then sent, he didn't send a book, actually he sent his son, right, to communicate that, um, and then he commissioned out uh, apostles um, to to through the Spirit of God to begin to write uh, the uh, the New Testament scriptures. So I've got uh, too many verses here. I'm going to skip through these. I'll have them in your notes here. Um, I'll put them online. So this you find like Ephesians two twenty built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. This is Paul writing. What I, what I mean by that the reason this is important. They understood that they were writing scripture. They didn't, they, they didn't think otherwise. They realized that what they were writing was foundational uh, for the church. Um, you find, you know, when Paul says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers, obviously he understood there was authority. You don't just say that <laughs> to everybody. He understood that point. Um, 
been against Jesus himself, so that he came to fulfill it, uh, not to abolish the Old Testament. So he came to fulfill those things. Uh, the, uh, the, the, New the New Testament was not a replacement of the Old, it was a fulfillment of the Old, and so that makes the Old Testament important for us. That's why you, that's why you have a Bible, you don't just have a New Testament. We have an Old and New. They're all inspired by God, and they all go together as one total book. Okay? So what was the criteria? When these guys... We're kind of talking. I told you this last week. When they got together, it wasn't like it was like sipping coffee, you know, um, recliners, debating about what books in the, of the New Testament should be in. These guys were all pastors. They were all doing ministry. Many of them had already suffered, you know, and been persecuted. They had eyes gouged out. They had arms missing. I mean, just want you to make sure you understand the picture was not, you know, the, sometimes they want to portray like, oh, they just sat around sipping coffee and you know, have these nice theological debates. I mean, they were like running for their life. And so, but it was important for them because they realized their church they want to make sure that the people of God have the word of God and understand what it is. So there was a couple of criteria they used. First one was apostolic origin or apostolic association. What I mean by that is if an apostle of someone is an apostle, an apostle is someone who was, who is a witness of Christ's, you know, resurrection, uh, someone who was there for as an eyewitness, um, they would be considered an apostle. Uh, Paul would be brought into that as well. He would talk about that in his own story based on the appearance of Christ to him on the road to Emmaus. No, that's not correct. Road to Emmaus is Luke 24, Damascus Road. There we go. Um, and so if it was written by an apostle directly or indirectly, it was immediately considered. There wasn't much, uh, there wasn't much debate over that. Uh, Luke wasn't questioned because um, he was... Um, he, he was partners with Paul. Mark wasn't questioned because most of his gospel was referenced from Peter himself. Um, so there wasn't any debate over those. So the second level became what they called reception of the early church. Uh, was the book um, readily accepted and treated as authoritative by the followers of Jesus and by the apostles? Like, did they treat that and understand that to be uh, what it was? Uh, so they took into account how a particular document had been received and quoted um, as authoritative early on. Lastly, they had uh, what we called uh, compatibility of doctrine. Um, if any books were left over after all of that, uh, they had to look at them. And, was it consistent with the rest of Scripture? Sometimes we call this the analogy of Scripture. Is it, is it, does it mirror? Does it, is it parallel uh, with the rest of the... Is it spoken as, a, as an entire whole? Is it con contrasting, for example, um, something um, doctrinally in the, in the Bible? Okay. So those are kind of the methods they use. Now... What about the Apographa? Anybody know what the Apographa is? You've seen that? Um, you've had a Catholic Bible or grew up Catholic or have Catholic friends? They have a Bible too, and most of it's exactly the same as ours, <clears throat> except for that piece. <laughs> There's this Apographa thing, so we probably need to understand that. What is that? Where that come from? Um, it's a Greek word that means uh, hidden or secret or obscure, which should send some red flags off right there, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Hidden, secret, or obscure. It's a group of books produced during, now is another word for you, intertestamental period. Okay, does anyone know what that time period was? Between the Old and the Testament. Yes, that's right. Between Malachi, the Italian prophet, and Matthew, the Jewish prophet. No, I'm just kidding. Malachi wasn't, I was like saying that because that's really cheesy. Um, Malachi and Matthew. So that 400 years of silence, sometimes they call it, or intertestamental period. So in, in between the two testaments. Um, he said the, the Roman Catholic Church embraced these books as scripture and included them in their first Latin Bible called the Vulgate, which was around 400 um, A.D. Uh, the Reformation churches did not, by the way, and we'll talk about that difference here in a moment. So, um, at the end of the day, the Apographa, we would say, is not part of scripture for the following reasons. Let me give you a couple reasons why. First of all, 
The Catholic Church doesn't have the authority to declare books. Okay, inspired. Um, they don't have that authority. Um, understand that um, the dispute took place, uh, really this dispute over whether it should be included took place in about the 16th century. So the Reformation period, there's the reformers like Luther, Calvin, and the Catholic Church. Um, this is really when this debate took place. Remember that when the canon was being officially established, where we're talking about that 300 or so, remember Athanasius, the guy with the cool forehead, things like that. Um, those guys, that was uh, there was no such thing as the Catholic Church. There was no such thing as the Protestant Church. Okay, neither of those existed. Just so you know, like I know that they want to say Peter was the start of the Catholic Church, but he wasn't. Okay, so it didn't officially start to the fifth century um, in that, and so. Um, so the early church in the 4th century uh, didn't accept the Apocrypha. It was never in there. Okay, So it was never in the Bibles before the 5th century. When the Catholic Church started, it was a split, east, west, all that stuff. When that started, they then brought in, in their Latin kind of version of the Bible, the Apocrypha. So it wasn't there originally. It was brought in by them. And we'll talk about why in a moment. You'll begin to understand hopefully a little bit about Catholicism as a result of this. Um, so the debate comes down to the issue of authority. We would say the Bible trumps all authorities, right? It is the authority. The Catholic Church, though, would say it's just one of many authorities, if you know that or not, right? So they would say the Bible is just one of many authorities. There's, there's the Bible, then there's tradition, um, there are the popes, and there's church councils, right? So there's really four authorities, and they actually, ironically enough, can contradict each other, uh, which they do uh, many times. Um, so when we talk about the canon being uh, foreign, we believe the church the people of God during the 4th century were providentially guided by God to kind of seal that whole process up of what we have. Um, however, we don't believe that the church was inherently infallible in doing that, okay? We don't believe that uh, uh, either then or, or now. By contrast, the Roman Catholic formula says that we have the correct books because in the 5th century, the Catholic Church told you who the, what the right books were, <laughs> okay? So that's kind of how they got that process. Um, and so... Um, so all this debate took place, uh, it was called the Council of Trent in the 16th century, and it came out with this. Here's what they kind of came out with. I'll give you these two uh, conclusions to this. So Protestants came out with a, with a phrase, sola scriptura, scripture alone. What they meant by that was it, it is the sole authority. Catholics came mm -hmm. out, Roman Catholic Church came out with what called dual source theory instead of that. Uh, meaning it's not just the Bible, there's multiple sources for authority. You can see that kind of in the uh, in the word. And so they believe that both scripture and the Catholic tradition and teaching had equal authority. That's why uh, when a particular do doctrine falls under scrutiny, uh, Protestants, this will be what we are, will, um, will establish your position by appealing to the scriptures. This is why it's hard to talk to people who are Catholic, because they'll appeal to not just the scriptures, they'll appeal to popes and councils and tradition. See, so it's all you're appealing to what authority you're appealing to. This is a, the crux of that whole Reformation thing. I know you think about Luther nailing the thing to the wall, that kind of thing. This was kind of the issue. What's the authority? Is it Scripture or is there the church and popes, etc.? So, um, so that's kind of what, what, with that. The second reason, um, it was never included in the Hebrew Old Testament. So the Jewish community <clears throat> never accepted um, the Apocrypha. It was never part of their books. It was never read in their synagogues. Like it just wasn't part of their history. Um, so, matter of fact, uh, some of the different uh, books and stuff would even tell us that, uh, that they didn't do that. Even the, uh, some of the writings within the Apocrypha, so here's one here. Um, First Maccabees is one of those books in that. It said, um, they tore down the altar 
stored the stones in a convenient place on the Temple Hill until a prophet should come to tell them what to do with would do with them. So there was a great distress in Israel, such has not been has not been since the time the prophets ceased to appear among them. So read all that to say, so here's like two, three hundred, okay, BC. They're acknowledging that it hasn't been since Malachi that a prophet has spoken for God. So the own book is saying, yeah, we haven't had heard a word from God since because it's just history. Maccabees is interesting. I mean it, it, I wouldn't discourage you from reading it. You can read it. It's actually good history. It gives us a lot of foundations to understand like when you read Malachi and you stop and you pick up the Bible and start reading Matthew, there's some things that show up there and you're like, where'd these Pharisees come from? <laughs> like, what's going on with these guys? Like, where did the, these books kind of help establish like what was going on during that time period. So it's helpful. Um, but they even acknowledge, they don't, their own books acknowledge like, yeah, we're, I mean, we're just a kind of recording history. The word of God was actually sometime later. Another reason, um, they were never accepted as inspired by Jesus or the apostles. You'll never find Jesus quoting from them, uh, the apostles quoting from them, or using them as, at least as a, as a record of uh, authority. Um, there's also no record of dispute between Jesus and the Jewish leaders um, of his day over what the extent of the scriptures were. He seemed uh, to assume that, there was, that the, their Bible was the Bible. He made, again, uh, remarkable claims about its authority. Uh, they disagreed over the meaning Jesus and the Pharisees, right? They disagree over the meaning, but they never never debated the scope. They never debated like, no, that, that's not part of the Bible. You, ever, you never read that, right? There was never debate over it. It was just kind of universally accepted to understand what was part of it, what wasn't. The apographer definitely was never considered part of that. Okay. Um, let's see. Let's go to the next one. We'll skip a couple of verses here. Uh, another reason. Do, 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 do. Here we go. They were not accepted as inspired by early disciples, meaning we, sometimes the word we use is church fathers, which sounds kind of weird, like <laughs> church daddies. Um, but they were, um, they were just basically pastors, church leaders after Jesus, after the apostles, right? So somewhere between 100 to like 400, um, all of those. So if you're ever interested in reading those church daddies, I've got volumes. I've got like literally like 35 volumes of books that they wrote. So if you ever want to read those, feel free to come see me. But anyway, one of the um, earliest witnesses uh, to the Old Testament canon that we have um, uh, in our Bible today is a guy named Melito, Bishop of Sardis, around AD 170. And he refers to, uh, and goes back to even reference again, hey, there, we don't use the Apocrypha, there's no, no, no Apocrypha books are mentioned um, as part of, of that. Uh, so, so what I'm saying is any time after 100 you see the writers, in between 100 before the Catholic Church started, Nobody references the apographer as being part of the Bible, okay? Um, and they do not have the same quality. And this may be just the main point here. You read them, you walk away going, that's why Catholicism believes what they believe, right? Um, interesting enough. So in, um, in the uh, apographa is where you find the doctrine of purgatory. It's where you find works-based salvation. It's where you find praying to saints and worship of angels, which is a lot of the tenets of the Catholic Church. You, you don't find that in our Bible. So you maybe sometimes wonder, like, how do you, why do you guys believe that? Like, it doesn't say that. It does in theirs, <laughs> in the Apocrypha. I'll give you some examples. So here's one of the books in there, Tobit 4.10. For almsgiving, it's giving to the poor, delivers one from death. It keeps you from going into the darkness, right? So if you give, this is all part of the Catholic Church, you go to the Reformation period, like how they were trying to build St. Peter's Cathedral, the whole, like, um, um, you know, you got to give, give us money for, you know, we'll give you, uh, 
indulgences? Indulgences. That's what I was looking for. Yes. That all came from here. This is where they got their kind of basis for doing that. They didn't just make it up. This is part of their apographa version. Another one here, Second uh, Maccabees 12. He sent 12,000 drachmas of silver to Jerusalem for sacrifice to be offered for the sins of the dead, whereupon he made reconciliation for the dead that they might be delivered from sin. There's that whole praying for the dead, right? Or giving, you go to the Catholic Church, there's candles, right? You give an offering, you pray for them to, you know, get out of purgatory. There it is, okay? So that kind of can help you make sense of their, that their authority is different. Uh, what they appeal to is different than what we do. So we don't have um, the same Bibles in that way. All right. What about uh, the other Gospels that existed? This is kind of a sort of modern debate. Um, in the second century, we call them Gnostic. Uh, the G is silent. Gnostic heretics claiming apostolic authority, wrote their own books, and disseminated them widely. Okay, so they did go out. Uh, they were not included in the canon. They were never really debated as such. So it's, uh, again, nothing new under the sun. Someone always trying to appeal to, like, I've got a word from God, and here it is kind of thing. Um, and so um, there were only three, again, I told you earlier, three, three documents that were um, even ever considered that are not part of our Bible. It was these three. Um, all three of those uh, were actually uh, were important. They were useful. They were good history. They were pastors writing letters to their churches, kind of like Paul would have done. Um, but there was never a struggle or much of a debate over them being included. Most of the controversy over the canon concerned not what was excluded, but what was actually included. Um, so, um, so we find that. So you get to the whole Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code thing, is when this kind of resurfaced in modern times. His books say the church selected the four Gospels out of 80, right? There's 80 of them, and, uh, and they chose four of them. The others not selected, he said, were snuffed out, buried, burned. They tried to get rid of them, but we found them kind of thing. It's kind of a <coughs> conspiracy, so that you buy books and watch movies. Um, uh, the fact is there were actually fewer than 30 total, by the way. Um, and only the, again, only the canonical Gospels, the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, were written, and everyone knows this, I mean, universally accepted, were the only ones written before 180. Okay, all the rest of them were written two, 300 years later. Uh, they're the only ones written that early. And so, um, so contrary to false accusation, not one of these lost Gospels, or again, what's called these uh, Gnostic Gospels, were hidden by the church. Furthermore, no lost Gospels have been discovered, by the way. So you know, nothing new's been found. <laughs> all the things that came up in recent years about all these different Gospels, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, they, they were all, they're all in church history. They're all the, the church fathers, those guys we talked about, wrote about them existing. So it wasn't like, they tried to hide them, okay? They, they, they've not said nothing new has been discovered. They knew of their existence. And there's no reason to be concerned that any lost gospels containing truth that we need um, about Jesus are out there. Uh, again, anyone curious enough can, uh, can read these. I'm going to give you a segment of the uh, Gospel of Philip, which is where they supposedly got the idea that Jesus and Mary Magdalene, you know, had a baby. Okay, conspiracy theory. Let me, here. Here's where they got that from. Here's literally what the, what, the, what, the, what the book says. And the companion of the, we don't know because it's gone, Mary Magdalene, we don't know, her more than the disciples, kiss her, the rest of. They said to him, why do you love her more than all of us? And as a result, they built this whole theory right there. There it is. That, that's what they got. That's what they found. They say, ah, oh, see, Jesus and Mary Magdalene, you know, they were a thing. Um, <laughs> is where they got that from. So, uh, and then uh, the Gospel of Thomas 
That was another one. Um, I love this one. This is the one. Uh, this is the one that they uh, appeal to. That um, that talk about um, um, you know that the that Jesus wasn't really God. All the different things that kind of in that whole Dan Brown uses uses that one. The, I love this one. This is from the Gospel of Thomas. Ladies, you'll love this one. Simon Peter said to him, "Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life." Jesus said, "I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven." That'd be a good message today. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> but I'm just trying to get. I mean, if you go back and read the stuff, it's just like it's pretty obvious. You start reading, going, "Yeah, someone was like." They dug up some roots in the desert and were chewing them or something. When he wrote this stuff, I mean, this is this is kind of weird. So um, there are no lost gospels out there. So uh, Craig Bloomberg, um, New Testament scholar, said, look, in no meaningful sense did these writers, church leaders, or councils suppress a Gnostic or apocryphal material, since there is no evidence of any candidate ever included them, nor that anyone put them forward for canonization. Like, no one ever appealed to these, like, oh, hey, this is a really good one. <laughs> it never happened nor that they were known widely enough to have been taken seriously, uh, or serious candidates for inclusion, had someone put them forward. Indeed, they would have failed all three of the major criteria used by the early church in selecting which books they were, at, in t- at times, very literally willing to die for. Um, no one was willing to die for the Gospel of Thomas. No one was willing to die for the Gospel of Judas. Okay? They, they are written two or three hundred years later. Uh, there was, again, Gnostic kind of theology, that basically the idea that the material is bad and the immaterial is good, and... That was was going on. So, just want you to know, they're not. Uh, there's nothing out there. All right. Any questions about all that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what does the Catholic Church say about the apocrypha? Does it say that it's inspired? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's in there. It's in our Bibles. If you go to Catholic Church, pick up a Bible. It's in there. And they would say it's inspired because the Catholic Church, in fifth century, determined that it was. And, and that's the end. The and that is the end of the, yeah. That's the end of the debate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no there's no debate out of that because the Catholic Church has authority. Has it have authority because it said it had authority in the fifth century? Mm-hmm. Okay, so nice. Yeah, nice circular reasoning there. So um, yeah, there's not much. There's they don't debate it. It's just part of it. And it's where a lot of their doctrine comes from. Mm-hmm. That gets. That's why you can you can talk to someone's Catholic and like yeah we we see it seems like we see eye to eye on some things and then they kind of go off on some things, they practice weird things, you're like, what? what? The apographer is really the, the source of a lot of that stuff. So the fact that you have multiple equal sources in the, in the Catholic Church is yes. why um, the first time the Pope retracted something, the Church didn't implode. Right. It, it's okay, because there's, there's, you know, yeah, I mean, you can have a, you have a, a Pope could have, a, you know, has authority, tradition has authority, the councils have authority, um, the Bible has authority, and that authority can change. <laughs> so it's like, he could be wrong. Okay, he didn't have authority. We thought he did, he didn't, because the new pope wrote this, and that contradicted that. Therefore, I mean, it's a mess. It really is. So, Which is, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people who are in the Catholic Church don't, don't know these things. Mm-hmm. They just kind of, you know, it's kind of the irony of, like, you sometimes talk about, like, you know, if you just have a Catholic read the Bible, <laughs> you come out and go, wait a minute, um, you know, it's not there. Um, you said earlier there was, like, a book on Barnabas. Right? Did you say yes, Pistol Barnabas. Yep. Um, so he was like an eyewitness, right? But right. Why wasn't Why wasn't that book? Yeah. So what I didn't say was that they used um, these Gnostic writers used pseudonyms. 
So they would write and they would put that. That should be a pretty big red flag there. They would write that, hey, this is the Epistle of Barnabas. It wasn't Barnabas writing it. Okay. It was someone else writing it, okay. but they put it title as Epistle of Barnabas so that it would kind of, hey, this should Give be included. Gotcha. Give it credibility. Okay. Yeah. They did a lot of did a lot of pseudonyms <laughs> back then too. So that's why when we say like the third century, fourth century, there was the you know, the council trying to figure out like which books because of this. Because by that time, fourth century, these these Gnostic guys are like writing all these mm-hmm. gospels, claiming to be written back in you know three hundred years earlier, which is really hard to do. Um, you know, when the material you're using, things like that, obviously point to the fact that that was just written today. <laughs> so, right. but they're trying to make it look like it was written from 300, and that's how they would do it. They'd put okay. they put an apostle or an eyewitness on name on the top when they were they weren't even the ones writing it. Hmm. All right. So let's talk about different translations. All right, different translations. Um, why, first of all, do different translations exist? Multiple translations exist in order to put the Bible into the language of each people, group, and culture. Okay, that's why there's translations. It's to put the Bible into the hands um, of people, different groups of people, and in their cultures. And there was, um, there was a three-step process um, that went on when talking about translations. Okay, three-step process that went on for this. Let's look at these. First one... Um, Revelation is the pro- first one, the, the revelation or the, the auto, not the book revelation, but when I say revelation, like the revelation of God's word. Um, the autograph is sometimes what we call that, the original manuscript. Okay, uh, This is the original copy. That's what we start with. After that, you have what's called transmission. We're copying from scribes. We talked about last week, right? You're copying, you're writing it down. Um, again, they were trained to, to write handwritten copies, pass those along. Um, as we talked about last week, the apostles, Jesus, they used, they used these transmissions. When Jesus was quoting Moses, he wasn't holding in his hand the original manuscript of Moses, okay? So, I mean, it, but he didn't say, like, okay, I don't know if this is actually what Moses said or not. <laughs> like, he, he quoted it, and I said, this is what he said. Um, they were using, you know, the transmission of the copies that were done by scribes. And lastly, the third step is then trans- translation. For those unfamiliar with the biblical languages, the original languages, they would translate those so the people could understand them. All right, um, and so um, this all started. The history of translation started uh, in 395 A.D. This was when there was the Roman Empire split, east and west. Western Empire ruled by Rome, Eastern Empire ruled by Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. Okay, so those the Roman Empire split up. The Roman Catholic Church began right around a, a similar time to this. Um, 395. 395. Um, so for centuries, there, the Eastern Church had the Bible only in Greek. Okay, uh, The Western Church had it only in Latin. So the Roman Catholic Church, Latin. The Eastern Church became known as Eastern Orthodox. Um, they had it only in Greek. That's why they usually call them Greek Orthodox a lot of times. right? It would be the word they would use. Um, since most people were fluent in those languages or the people that they actually cared about knowing, <laughs> um, they would just keep them in those languages, and if you didn't know them, it was too bad. Uh, which is why even a lot of times today, many times in the Catholic Church still, they'll just they'll still preach or read, right, in Greek or Latin, or whatever a version they'll use there, typically Latin is what they'll speak in, because that's what the Roman Catholic Church originally did it in, and since that was inspired, therefore, you see how that kind of makes sense in their mind, why they do that? It doesn't matter if you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, Protestant Reformation came along. Uh, reformers wanted people to have the Bible in their own language. And so guys like John Wycliffe um, risked their lives to kind of translate the Bible in English. Luther translated into German. 
Uh, William Tyndale uh, was the first, uh, he did the first English Bible back in 1388. Um, he was charged with heresy and committed to, uh, to death because of that. Um, there he is, good old William. It looks like he's very warm there. Um, he would fit in Indiana right now. Um, so that was, um, that was him. Um, he was, uh, when they talk about his death, the Fox Book of Martyrs says he was tied to the stake, strangled by the hangman, afterwards consumed with fire, just because he was putting the Bible into the hands of people to be able to read it. So this is one of the images that artwork they've done. Uh, so there's three different kinds of translations. Let's dig into those, okay? So three different kinds of translations um, and how those work. So first one, we'll call it word for word. Also, the word used is called, the technical word is formal equivalence. Um, this is the, um, emphasizes the precise wording of the original language. So they will go word by word. So they'll kind of look at a Greek, the original Greek language, see that, you know, it translated into English, and they'll just go, that word means this. It just kind of... Um, is kind of how they do it. Very literal, very following those words. Um, as a result of that, um, it, uh, it seeks to be transparent to the original text, letting the reader see as directly as possible the structure and meaning of the original. Uh, the result is they're striving for precision in what the Bible actually says, kind of treat it like a legal document um, or contracts, etc. So, and while there's many advantages to studying, because it is helpful, if you don't know the original language, reading a word-for-word -word dynamic, you know, I'm sorry, word-for-word -word translation, um, um, also, um, again, known as a formal equivalence translation, is helpful. Uh, it also can be a little rough reading. So, for example, like, I, I, you know, the uh, New American Standard Bible, the ESV, which I have here, um, those are all the, this kind of word-for-word -word translation. So you can go back, if you read... Like the Psalms, for example, it can be a little rough. <laughs> it's not because they're not trying to communicate poetry. They're trying to communicate what the word meant. And when you go from one language to the other, it can get a little bit wooden and a little bit stiff. They're sometimes hard to read um, in those places. Uh, the original King James would have been that as well. Uh, the second kind is what we call thought for thought, or also known as a dynamic equivalence. Uh, here they're trying to convey a passage's meaning. In the, in the language of the, of the reader, right? So they're kind of translating out the original language, or here's the sentence, okay? What that means is this, translated into English. Does that make sense? So not really going word for word, they're kind of going more for a broader kind of understanding of a sentence or a paragraph and putting it into language in which uh, we can understand. Um, this would be like the, the New International Version, or NIV. Um, others like that would be the uh, New Living Translation or Contemporary English Version. These are all, um, those are all very good. They're much easier to read. If you read a, if you ever read an NIV version versus reading like a ESV or a New American Standard, the NIV reads a little smoother. That's because they're going with concepts, not necessarily word for word. The ESV is good to study from. NASB is good to study from. Reading-wise, NIV is a lot easier to read. Last one, another kind of translation that's out there, is called a, a paraphrased or a summary equivalence version. Um, this is a, really emphasizing the readability in English. Uh, they pay less attention to specific words or patterns of words. They're hard to use as a study Bible because they're not going to, you know, when I talk about like this morning, I say, hey, when a word's repeated, that gives you a little bit of indication. If you want to cross-reference something, they're almost impossible to do that with because they're not really following word for word. They're just giving you the big idea. So the message would be one of these kind of translations, the Living Bible, Amplified Bible. These would all be kind of ways, paraphrased versions of that. Um, so, 
that is what they're going for. So all the faithful translations try to achieve a balance of four elements, what they're trying to do. Accuracy of the original text, as much as possible, right? Beauty of language, you're trying to make it so it's clear. Clarity of meaning, as along with that, and, and dignity of style. These are the things that they're trying to achieve in that. And so, so I would say that as you look at them, they, they all can be helpful. Um, I, I mean, there's times I've read ESV, and then I read the NIV, and I read the message, just to kind of get a broad spectrum of like, okay, here's these are very different philosophies of translation. I need to know that when I'm going into it. Um, but they, they are helpful in their own their own ways. The further you get to the to the side over here, the more you're getting. The more you're getting the, the, in some ways, the theology or the understanding of the translator, right? Because he's kind of going like, I think this is what this is trying to convey here. So the original one over here, the one that's kind of going more wooden, is not interested in necessarily what they necessarily believe. They're just trying to go word for word and just translate it. But it's not very smooth. Okay, It gives you the kind of difference in that. So, so you can kind of see some of the flow of this. Old Testament Hebrew manuscripts, New Testament ones. Uh, Latin Vulgate, that's the one with the Catholic Church, 382. Uh, Wycliffe's down there, bottom left. Gutenberg, uh, Geneva, and then King James, 1611. It's kind of the, the history of the translations that have gone that way. Um, having said all that, you also need to be aware that there are corruptive translations. Okay, so uh, the New World Bible, which is from the Jehovah's Witness, right, would be a corruption. Uh, that's not a faithful translation at all, so you want to stay away from ones like that. Um, those are uh, very much with an agenda. That version is going to try to remove any kind of references to the deity of Christ um, and take those out. And so that's, that's why you find some like a New World Translations. You want to stay away from those, okay? Not, that's uh, not, not following what the original text had. All right? Um, number 14 I have in there is, what about the King James debate? I'm not going there right now. Um, I will give you all that information. I've got a ton of information online. I'm going to skip down to number 15 for you. Um, just for the sake of time here. Um, so, actually, I have time. Are you interested in doing the King James debate? Yeah? Let's do it. All right. It's not going to be on the screen, but let's do it. I realize I've got, I've got time today. Um, all right. So, King James only debate. All right. Let's talk about that for a second. So, uh, I think in your thing there, um, as we uh, look at the documents, um, the King James only arguments, um, letter A there, the KJV is based on the majority text over against the modern versions that are based on the corrupt, they would say, Alexandrian text. You say, what in the world does all that mean? Basically, there is two basic, we would say, Greek versions of the Old Te Greek versions of the New Testament that we have um, that are from two different ages, and, uh, and it's trying to debate of which one do you base your translation off of, right? There's lots of copies of the Greek. Which copy do you use? Um, uh, the response they would give to that, most of the Byzantine or the, what's called the majority text is based on the King, King James, uh, used by King James translators, came from the 11th and 12th centuries. Uh, we have since discovered many older, we would say more reliable manuscripts, which are closer to the original writings, we believe, of the author. So sometimes you can get an argument, some of it's King James only, and like, this is the authority of God, this is what it is, your version left out this word, it was, a, it was an agenda, <laughs> you know, conspiracy. Um, and that's, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a conspiracy. The basis of the two translations, be it King James, be it NIV, or whatever it may be, the original Greek text they're using is different. Okay, that's why there's some words that are different on that. So based on, that's the first kind of argument. Uh, letter B, the modern translations attack the deity of Christ by removing references um, to his lordship, is what the King James 
group would say. Our response would be, again, the visiting texts do indeed have some additional words like Lord and Christ added to the name of Jesus in many places where the older, more reliable texts do not. So they would argue, say, hey, look, you're trying to take away the deity of Jesus. You're removing the word Lord. You know, you're removing the reference to Christ. You know, your, your version obviously is corrupt. <laughs> and so we would just say, again, the, the older manuscripts we're using, the older Greek versions, don't have those words in there. They were added. And we can understand if you're doing translation over years and hundreds of years that sometimes guys would add in some words to emphasize kind of like, well, it seems like you're probably you're having Lord in front of Christ or having the name Christ here seems to make more sense instead of he or whatever it may be. Um, so let's see, letter C there. The modern translations delete verses from the Bible. Based on the older, more reliable manuscripts, again, we would say the modern translations have simply sought to reflect what was contained in the original manuscripts. It's just as serious to add, add to scriptures as to take away, we would say. So we want to be careful that what we're basing our translation on is on what we believe is the closest or most reliable Greek text that we have. Letter D, the 1611 King James is the preserved word of God in English. Um, the answer to that one is <laughs> no one reads the 1611 version, just so you know. <laughs> okay? It also included the Apographa. There you go. All right. So the original 1611 King James Bible included the Apographa. We, we don't want to say that was the, that was the God's, <laughs> God's word. The 1769 revision is the common version of the King James, King James translation. Um, and this one includes thousands of differences compared to the original. So when you hear the 1611 thing, no one reads that version. Okay, <laughs> It just doesn't. Um, that was the one that had the Apographa in it. Uh, letter E, um, the modern translations promote a work salvation. Again, kind of a conspiracy that we're somehow trying to uh, dumb down God's word. Virtually, again, all of today's cults, except Jehovah's Witnesses, prefer the King James Version over the rest, including the Mormons, who also preach a works-based salvation. Of course, this does not negate the worth of King James, not thrown under the bus, but we, we could use this argument if we were to employ the same tactics that the King James-only crowd does as well. Uh, lastly, F, the newer versions include footnotes, which offer different renderings of certain words and verses. These footnotes confuse the reader, undermine the doctrine of inspiration. Again, 1611 version also includes thousands of footnotes, which offer different readings for different verses. We should be grateful for translators to be honest about their limits when translating difficult verses. Okay, so, so it's not bad that if you read your English Bible, it's got a footnote that says, could also mean, that's helpful to us. They're just being honest. They're just saying, like, look, we're trying to translate it as faithfully as we can, um, this word could be used um, could be used differently and mean different things. Okay. All right. So why do I believe the canon is closed? Why do I believe there's no more being added to it? Um, we would say the only people who could write scripture were apostles and prophets, are those commissioned by them. Okay. Since there are no prophets and apostles today, which ended, which we'll talk about in a second, um, there are no new books to be written or added to put into the Bible. Okay. There's no more prophets, no more eyewitnesses today of Christ. They're not around, okay? Um, so when we get to a passage of Scripture, Deuteronomy 4, 2, do not add to the word, he says, or don't nor take away from it. Um, Deuteronomy 12, 32, be careful to do, you shall not add to it or take away from it. This is used quite a few times in the Bible, actually. Don't add, don't take away. Um, Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, is every word of God is true. He's a shield of those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words. Um, and then Revelation 22, uh, 18 would say, I, I warn everyone who hears these words, if anyone adds to them, God will take will add to him the plagues in the book. <laughs> so, it's not, it doesn't sound good um, in that way. So you want to stay away from that. Um, so here, Deuteronomy 4.2, 2, 
Uh, Deuteronomy 12, 32, with those verses, Proverbs 30, 5, and 6. And then this one here is Revelation 22, 18 through 19. Okay, so we, we, we believe that these references are all telling us that there is a conclusion to, to what was written. There's nothing added later. Um, and then consider just the symmetry. So take the Bible as a whole for a minute. It's like the big picture view. Let's think about the symmetry. It's perfect symmetry in the Bible. There are three errors, eras, not errors, eras of mankind and the earth. Um, there's the past, we would say, original earth with mankind created from the earth, Genesis 1 and 2. There is the present, which is Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, fallen earth, glimmers of the original where mankind dies, returns to the earth. And there's the future, Revelation 21 and 22, mankind resurrected from the earth to live on the new resurrected earth. Okay, so we find that kind of symmetry in the Bible, where even if you read the first two chapters of Genesis, you read the last two chapters of Revelation, you even see a lot of similar pieces, you know, the tree and things that are there, they're like, oh, that was way back at the beginning. It's kind of, again, showing you bookends of a complete story uh, that ends that way. There's also symmetry in the Old Testament and New Testament, how they go together, all right? So you have the Old Testament ended with Malachi, promising to be the next major event in redemptive history would be the coming of John the Baptist, where he would prepare the way for Jesus. Uh, there were then 400 years of silence in which no book of the Bible was written until John came as promised. Right? Else, likewise, New Testament ends with its final book, Revelation, telling us that no other books of the Bible are to be written after it, and that we will again have silence until Jesus comes a second time. So again, they both end with the same kind of promise, same kind of idea of what's going on. And then there's symmetry just comparing Genesis and Revelation, as I mentioned to you before. You have the Redeemer promised in Genesis, you have the Redeemer returning in Revelation. You have paradise lost in Genesis. You have paradise regained right, in Revelation. Uh, this led uh, Randy Alcorn, uh, a writer, a Christian writer, said the, these parallels are too remarkable to be anything but deliberate. These mirror images demonstrate the perfect symmetry of God's plan. We live in the in-between time, hearing the echoes of Eden and the approaching footfalls of the new earth. Right? I mean, just all it all makes sense when you take it all as a complete um, book in that way. And so we believe that it is closed. There's no additional pieces. Uh, when Paul would write in Ephesians 2.20 that they, they were laying the foundation, we were we built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You don't keep building a foundation. The foundation was built with them. Um, they were the writers. There's no more additional pieces being added to that. Um, one final story I'll share with you. This is during one of my uh, chapels I had when I was back in seminary uh, some time ago. Um, John MacArthur was doing my chapels and he was sharing a um, story he had visited a friend a friend who collected old bibles and he actually brought this with the to the uh to the chapel that day and he had some dated as far back pieces of the bible dated back as far back as the fourth century um but his favorite one he said was that he had a bible that was from the 16th century so during the reformation period time um actually was during the towards the end of the 16th century in england when the reformation kind of made its way from germany moved away across europe there and made its way to england um on that bible there were the top third of it was stained. Um, the top third of that Bible was stained. It was actually stained with blood from the 16th century. And it was during the reign of Bloody Mary. And what she would do, if you refused to recant, right, of your belief and following of Christ, um, she would have you killed, if you're a pastor especially, because they usually had one Bible, right, in the, in the church. It wasn't like everyone had an individual one. They would take, take the Bible out. They would take the, the pastor. They would, they would martyr him, kill him. And they would take the Bible and dip it into his blood and throw it back inside the church. Like this is this is the cost of which you would have. So he still had a had a copy of that. 
Um, you can kind of see, it's a kind of a faded version here, but you can see kind of the, the lines. That line doesn't come out too well. It looks better on my screen. But you can see the top third of them is covered with, they still have these copies. They're called Martyr's Bibles of that. And I, I share that story to always remember that image. And as I got to look at the Bible and kind of look at like, man, it costs, it costs people their life to give it to us. This isn't something we take haphazardly. It's not something we take casually. Like the Word of God's been given to us as a gift that people lay down their life to preserve, to get it to where it is today. Um, you know, we, we sit in a pretty comfortable spot. I mean, we've got just resources at our fingertips. We can look things up online. We can research this, do that. Like we have multiple versions and translations, and it's great. I mean, that's wonderful. You go to a foreign country, you can translate stuff pretty quick with Google Translator, right? You can do all kinds of stuff to communicate God's Word. It's wonderful. But it took a lot of martyrdom, a lot of blood, a lot of shedding blood of that to get it today. As a matter of fact, there's a story two years ago um, of uh, some, some translators that were, um, I'm sorry, actually I was going to read MacArthur said here about this. He said, I could see where it was well-worn from being studied. There were water stains, as if from tears, in places where a thumb had frayed favorite pages. This was someone's most valuable possession, and his or her blood is there to prove it. In sad contrast, however, contemporary Christians tend to take their Bibles for granted, forgetting that many have given their lives just to own a copy of it. Right? So you know, uh, two years ago, uh, Wycliffe Bible translators, there was uh, four of them that were killed in the Middle East. Um, Wycliffe had kind of given a statement about it, said the attackers shot and destroyed all the equipment in the Bible translator's office because they, they didn't want the Bible translated into their language. Um, it had hard drives containing the translation work for eight language projects who didn't have the Bible in their language. They were able to save those um, from that. Two of the workers were apparently killed by gunshot, they said. Two others laid on top of the, the lead translator um, and died, it said, quote, while deflecting blows from the radicals spent weapons managed to save his life and then him instead of retreating went back uh and kept to uh to redouble the effort he said to publish and print the gospels uh for eight languages in those communities they were still able to do that and still follow through with that they said quote by god's grace the digital copies of the translators that were under underway in those eight languages were protected they were backed up and the work uh continued he said um so according to the report, uh, there was wide, widespread deadly presence of Islamic extremists in the Middle East and Central Asia. And they said over the past year, 11 of the 28 Bible translators living and working in this region have been reported dead or missing. Right? So it, it is still happening. People still trying to get the word of God into other people's languages and getting killed for it. It wasn't something just this old history. So just think about that. As we talk about studying the Bible, we talk about presenting the Bible, teaching the Bible. It, it is precious. It's not casual. Um, it's something we should take very seriously as we work through that. And, uh, and we'll start next week digging into, like, how do we discover the meaning of the text? How do we, how do we what tools do we use? We'll call this uh, hermeneutics. What, what tools do we use? Um, and the analogy we'll use here is we'll talk about it's kind of like a diver searching for a pearl, right? You've you got to use tools to, to get down into the water in your tank and get down to the bottom. You've got to dig, and you've got to get the, the pearl out. And then you got to take it back, shine it, shine it up, put it, put it in the jewelry case, right, for display, for people to, to want it, right? And that's kind of the process that we're going to go about. We're going to go about digging, finding it, then presenting it in a way that people are attracted to it, right? People that can understand it, can see it, right? And so that's the process. So we'll start off with studying and how do we dig in, how do we understand the meaning, how do we get it? Because we want to get it right, okay? We want to get it right. But at the same time, we don't want to bore people to death, okay? It's a sin to bore people with the Bible. We don't want to do that. 
but it's also a sin to get it wrong, okay? So we want to make sure we get it right, and then we also we want to make sure that we present it in such a way that people understand it um, and, and, uh, and that it's clearly uh, communicated to them, all right? Um, any other questions? Anything at all? All righty. Uh, well, I, got your, to... I have a question. Yeah, go for it. I just want your take on Jesus Calling. Jesus what? Jesus Calling. Have you heard of Jesus Calling? Oh, the book. Okay, I was, yeah. I'm sorry. I was thinking of, um, I have not read that. I, I've heard about it, but I really probably can't really okay. truly, honestly, intellectually talk about it because I don't know. I've not read it. A lot of people are using it, it seems, in place of their Bibles. Okay. What What is it exactly? It's like what? prayers that Jesus is saying over you. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So it's like a late... I have never read it, but a okay. lady um, felt like she was inspired to be hmm. a mouthpiece. Okay. Interesting. Is that fair? So, okay. Yeah. I have a lot of friends who use it, and I'm like, oh. Yeah, I'd personally steer clear of that one. That's what I would I would yeah. say. I mean, I think there's there can be interesting kind of ideas of of that, but to somehow say that I'm communicating, yeah, because you know, this is what Jesus written, prays over you. It's like oh, that's pretty well, audacetic to uh, like um, like he's talking to you, right? And then there'll be a couple of scripture references under it. Mm-hmm. It's really really strange. Yeah, it's very weird. We call it, it's probably a, 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 it comes from a root of what we call uh, mysticism um, in Christianity. There's a, definitely a, a strong mystic, mystic side um, that wants that kind of personal feeling of Jesus talking to me personally, kind of thing. And at the same time, when we talked about it earlier uh, last last week, we talked about the, the you know even like the Book of Hebrews would tell us that the Word of God's living and active. It's alive. It is speaking. God is speaking to us through it. So we don't want to say, you know, we want to down downplay that part. Um, but at the same time, to say that I've I've got here's what Jesus has said, and I'm gonna publish a book and you can read it, and because Jesus is talking to you too, is that to me crosses a line yeah. on that one. But again, I've not I've not read it, so I can't speak to it honestly. Other questions? Well, good. All right. How do you do with uh, yeah. Hebrews? How do you do with Hebrews? What? Like uh, the fact that we don't know who the author was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that doesn't hit one of the three criteria, but the right. fact that it was accepted is enough to kind of... The last of those three criteria, which was like the doctrine. the, the um, analogy of a doctrine that it actually goes with and matches, was the reason why that book was not questioned much, because there's not, you know, Hebrews 1, along with like Colossians 1, or some of the highest um, deity of Christ passages in the Bible. Um, and so because of that, um, it was uh, it was kind of universally accepted on that one, even though, I mean, the early church had lots of ideas of who wrote it. And there was lots of debate. A lot of trees died over the amount of material that they were written <laughs> over who wrote Hebrews, but no one actually really knew or even know today who wrote it. Um, so so that was a you know, problem to know the author, but at the same time, the doctrine of it and its um, consistency with the rest of Scripture it was not much of a debate in the early church of whether it should be accepted. I mean, there's some, I mean, I, I know that like, you know, James was pretty highly debated a little bit that would hung on there. Um, mostly because they felt like the, it was, it was contrasting or, uh, uh not contrasting. It was, um, contradicting, um, you know, James two, where it says, for example, says, uh, justification by, uh, uh justified by works, mm-hmm. um, versus Paul saying Romans four justified by faith. And people were like freaking out over like, well, that obviously is like apocrypha type stuff. Like that's not, 
and the issue with that one, because uh, Luther called it, uh, Luther didn't like James. <laughs> Luther, Martin Luther actually in the 16th century called it the Strawy Epistle and refused to quote from it. Like he just acted like it didn't exist. Um, the problem with that one, I'll go into that just real quick here since we got a little bit of time, is whenever you're in this, we'll get into this next week, we talk about studying, is that your, your first thing you do if you're in a book of the Bible, you're going to understand the language, the Greek language, and that understand the words just like in English can mean, you know, two different things. Um, sometimes it depends on certain writers can use words to mean different things. So I mean, we can use the word, um, I just kind of culturally hot button word to use, but you can use the word gay to be happy or gay to be, you know, sexual, sexual orientation conversation, right? So these are two different ways of using, very different ways of using a word in English, right? There's lots of words like that we can do. Um, so back then, um, you have, whenever you're, trans- whenever you're looking at a, a, a book, you want to see how does that author use that word. Um, and be careful of jumping to another book, another writer, and saying, well, he used that word this way, therefore that's what this what it means here. So that was the problem with James and James and, um, and Paul. They were using the word justified, declared right, to be two totally different things. Let me explain that to you. So justified by when Paul uses it, He's using it in a very, um, the whole book of Romans, as we would call it, it's a very soteriological way of looking at it. Let me explain that. <laughs> um, it, he's speaking of it as a salvation issue, right? I am justified, declared right before God. How do I get into a relationship with God? By faith, not by works, is what he'll say, right? So that's how we're used to, we're used to that kind of terminology. We're, you know, kind of Protestant, Reformed kind of people. That's how we're used to using it. When James throws in, Justified by works, it sends sirens off. We're like, whoa, whoa, that's a contradiction. Uses it in a totally different way. James uses the word justified. Really, the really the word could be translated vind, vind, um, what's from the uh, vindictive um, vindication. Thank you. Vindication is kind of the idea of how he uses the word. What he means is, I'm just, I'm declared right by works. I mean, I am. I am vindicated. My, my, my life is proven that I am justified by faith because my works prove that it was genuine. Does that make sense? Like the fruit of his Yes. Labor. So he's talking, yeah. if you read James 2, that's what he's talking about, right? You right. know, how can you say you love your brother, but he comes right. to your, you know, you don't give him food. Right. You might, you're, you're probably not a Christian kind of thing. Right. So they are totally, one's talking about entering into being a Christian, and one's talking about proving that I really am a Christian. Like evidence. Evidence, yes. So the words are used very differently by the two authors. Hmm. So when you go back and look at it, it starts to make sense. Like, okay. And sometimes even using that word would help in James. Mm-hmm. Um, because, but we come from a, a very heavy Reformed tradition. So when we see the word justified, we only think of it in one way. We only think of that as, how do you get saved? Mm-hmm. And that's true. That's how Paul uses it. James uses it differently. Huh. I don't even know how I got on that. Bruce James. <laughs> I was like, how did I get on that? Um, <laughs> Yeah, you can give me a go. I can just sit here. All day long. I'll be back later. No. Um, so anyway, so that's uh, that kind of gives you a little bit. James was debated pretty heavily because of that one kind of phrase. But once you understand how an author uses a word, they can use it differently. So you have to be careful when you cross-reference an author's use of a word um, because they may use them differently, just like we do today, mm-hmm. can use words in English differently depending on our context and situation. And James was given, you know, James talked about the practical... Christian. And that's also why it wasn't talked about a lot in the early church, because about the time, around 300, 350 to 400, there was a lot going on during that time. That's when the church really blew up in terms of, like, in a good way, like, 
became majority of the Roman Empire within 50 years. Um, really, the gospel expanded. There's people who are taking that and trying to make money off of it. There's people writing like the Epistle of Barnabas. You know, they're mm-hmm. writing all these, and now it's, it's all this crazy stuff is happening. So in the church, we got to clarify what books are in the Bible. James wasn't one that came to the top mm-hmm. because James didn't deal a lot with deep theological you know, doctrinal issues, right? He didn't deal with it a lot. He dealt with more practical, like, how, you know, how to live out your faith. Um, so it wasn't one that was, came up in conversation, right, in debates. If they're going to debate the deity of Christ, they're going to Hebrews, they're going to Colossians, they're going to John. James just didn't come up when they were debating all these false teachers and stuff. So that's why James was kind of lingering around a little bit. Um, it's because it just didn't present that theological kind of debate and that's only <laughs> um you know it's just it, it just didn't it wasn't it wasn't the forefront because of what they were facing at the time um so it was their own battle with fake news basically yeah it was <laughs> they were they were they were battling fake news they, yep they got people who start to say things that aren't right nothing new under the sun yeah yeah that's what i said it wasn't like um Someone, you know, that had, had a drive to go, the, we're going to canonize the scripture. We're going to secure, what are the books of the Bible? Like, it really just, it wasn't brought up. It only got brought up because of heresy. Right. Because people were attacking it. And going, well, we need to clarify what this is then. Because we, we, have, we have authority we can base off of. If you want to know what's false, you got to know what's real. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. You know, people were going to, people were taught how to, you know, sp- how to spot a you know, counterfeit $20 bill. Don't say the counterfeits, they study the original, right? right? So then they can know, okay, yeah, it doesn't match. And that's kind of what they were doing. They were like, okay, we got to study the original. What is the original so we can know what the counterfeits are? That's kind of how it started. Yeah. So it wasn't a conspiracy of people, you know, sitting around trying to uh, come up with some political movement. What books of the Bible can help us, you know, win the day with our political opponents? Like, that's not what was going on at all. Can you also pretty much recreate the canon just from what those early church fathers quoted? Yes. You could. I mean, that, and that, that was, when I mentioned those three criteria, yeah. number two was that. Number two was what was considered accepted and quoted, basically, during the first 100, 200 years after, after the apostles died. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you'll just see that's what they quoted were, were these. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that reason, though, some of those, like I talked about um, Shepherd of Hermes or First Clement, like those, those were considered because there were year 200, 300, people were quoting those books. So that's why they were only one, there's three of them, that were kind of on the radar as like, maybe this is part of Scripture. It's written later, but did, the, did it stop there? And that's when the whole understanding of it was written by apostles and prophets, that these guys weren't eyewitnesses anymore, so therefore they're good books, but they can't be considered part of Scripture because it had to have ended after their last apostle. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's how those books kind of got, yeah, they're not part but they're good. They're just pastors writing letters to their churches, right? Like Paul did. But they weren't eyewitnesses, so therefore they weren't considered. Right? Okay. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for our time. Thank you for um, for your word. Thank you we have it. Thank you it's been given to us. It is precious. Um, it is valuable. People have given their lives so that we can have it, and then we get the opportunity, even in our country, the freedom to be able to present it, the freedom to be able to teach it. Uh, may you help us uh, to know it well. Uh, to know it accurately, and then be able to communicate it in a way that people can love it more um, like we love it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.